Welcome to ISM Fellows in Conversation, a podcast from the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. The episodes in this series present a discussion between a current ISM student and a visiting researcher in the ISM Fellows program. Each year, the Institute hosts a cohort of fellows who are in residence for one year to pursue interdisciplinary projects and teach at Yale. The following conversation focuses on the diverse research, teaching, and creative work of a current ISM fellow. I'm Marika Proctor. I'm a second-year MAR student in Religion and the Arts, and in this episode of the ISM Fellows podcast, I am delighted to be speaking with Dr. Jeremiah Lockwood, who is a scholar, singer, guitarist, and composer. He holds a PhD from Stanford in Education and Jewish Studies, where his dissertation included fieldwork among young Hasidic cantors in New York City. His own musical career began in New York years earlier, playing guitar with blues musician Carolina Slim and in synagogue, singing under the instruction of his grandfather, cantor Jacob Konigsberg. Dr. Lockwood is founder and frontman of The Sway Machinery, a group whose music The New Yorker has described as unclassifiable and uplifting, as it blends the sounds of blues, Jewish cantorial music, and other musical influences. Here at the ISM, Dr. Lockwood has been completing a book project entitled Golden Ages, Hasidic Singers and Cantorial Revival in the Digital Era, as well as conducting research for a new project that explores the music of female Jewish cantorial stars of the early to mid-20th century. Jeremiah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Marika. It's a pleasure to get to talk to you today. We're excited to have you. I'm wondering if you could just set the scene. The 1920s is considered the beginning of the Cantorial Golden Age. Uh, For those of us who might not be so familiar, can you give us a sense of how are these cantors suddenly becoming popular outside of the synagogue? What are the technological and the social factors at play? Oh, that's a fantastic question. So starting in the 19th century, there was a push to use the synagogue music world as a means of changing the sound of, of Jewishness to shift into new forms of citizenship and participation in the state, kind of paralleling uh, the emancipation of Jews as, as citizens in some of the countries in which they lived. This was not universal across Europe. It was primarily in the German-speaking countries. In Eastern Europe, Jews still lived under the Tsar, where there were specific forms of uh, institutionalized repression of Jews. Nevertheless, these kinds of shifts in sound, the adaptations of the sounds of German romanticism into synagogue music, had an influence in the Eastern European scene as well, especially in the big cities. So this kind of set the stage for uh, a dueling concept of what what sacred music should sound like, what, what it could be, how it could speak to multiple worlds at once, both as a form of continuity with older forms of uh, Jewish folkloric past, or at least what was imagined as the folkloric past, with other kinds of newer cosmopolitan musical forms. All of that kind of came to a head in the early 20th century with the new technology of the gramophone. So all of a sudden, these cantorial voices, which were in many ways uh, akin from a technical standpoint to operatic voices in terms of the kind of sound production uh, were perfectly suited for this new moment in which opera stars were the the leading lights, the luminaries of the emerging international recorded music industry. So starting as early as 1901, 1902, cantors were beginning to make gramophone records. 
And as early as the the first decade of the 20th century, star cantors like Zavol Kvartin, who was born in a small town in Ukraine, but then his talent brought him to uh, big big city positions as as a cantor. Uh, he was selling half a million records a year. So by the the 20s, after World War One, there was a big shift in Jewish musical culture where the center of recording, at least, moved from Europe to the United States, mm, which mm. was the, the new uh, emerging hotspot of, of Jewish culture and population, uh, specifically in New York City, but in other parts of the United States as well. And the Edison Recording Studio in Camden, New Jersey, that became the center of you know the Jewish music world in a lot mm. of ways. Uh, cantors like Yossela Rosenblatt, who had a star turn in the film The Jazz Singer, and and Kvartin again, now now in the United States, as well as you know a, a several dozen other cantorial stars uh, were making records and adapting their Eastern European style of Jewish sacred music, mm -hmm. which was already, as we m mentioned a, a moment before, had this kind of syncretic between worlds quality, mm. adapting it again to the American context. Right. And I would say that the, the, at first, at least, the, the, the big sonic difference was that cantors were very keenly aware of theater music, mm. uh, Yiddish mm. theater music, which was itself very much dancing with uh, mainstream Broadway. You know, some of the, the same musicians who were Yiddish theater uh, composers were also sure. writing popular, popular songs for the, the broader American market. And this idea of representing the community in a theatrical form hmm. plays itself uh, out in the kinds of compositions the cantors would record, oftentimes accentuating or highlighting concepts of a folkloric Jewish sound, kind of framing uh, ethnicity or the sacred past in uh, highly emotive, mm. highly dramatized ways, and you know, and tailoring them to the specific, you know. Uh, time marker of the three and a half minute long right. you know, uh, record, record side. Right, right. In terms of the, the jump from what you would have been hearing in the synagogue and what you would be hearing in a, in a performance or on the gramophone record, you're hearing instrumentation in a way that you might not in synagogue. Is that right? Yes, that, that's exactly right. Okay. right. Uh, on the records, the norm was for there to be some kind of an accompaniment. Uh, the typical accompaniment was organ, mm -hmm. although some of the records also have orchestra mm. or some other kind of instrumental accompaniment. And in general, that's not what you would hear in a synagogue right. uh, because of ritual prohibitions on the use of musical instruments. But you'd be hearing a lot of the same texts and, and certain settings, right? Certainly that the same texts. That you'd hear in the synagogue on the, on the record, which is part of perhaps what made them so popular, along with many of these other cultural factors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's a kind of a, a cultural intimacy about the music, right? Sure. They're referencing texts that people are very familiar with uh, mm -hmm. uh, from the experience of, of prayer in the synagogue. And they're referencing a set of sonic markers of Jewish vocal production, uh, which are harder to uh, name, harder mm -hmm. to, to explain, but that were instant recognizable to Jewish listeners. Right, right. So the synagogue is influencing these early recordings. What about the early recordings going back to close the loop, influencing performances um, or prayer in synagogue? Yeah, that's a very perceptive and astute question. And that's you hear that in a lot of what uh, you know people call gramophone cultures, mm. right, where, where musical forms that are specific to a ritual context or some other kind of sociality, they change a lot in the, mm -hmm. in the recording studio. And then those records become standards. They become the hits mm -hmm. right, that everybody knows. And they end up being reinterpreted back 
re-interpolated uh, back sure. into the into the synagogue space. Sure. So you hear that in uh, in synagogue performance uh, that cantors will sometimes sing pieces that are from famous records, or there will be riffs that refer to old records. So much of this is about these merging of worlds, and in your own work, both as an academic and a musician, and even even your music itself blends genres. It's making me think of um, some of the female cantorial stars that you shared um, in presentations this year with the ISM and with the Yale community. People like Sophie Kurtzer and Goldie Malowski, uh, they they seem to be bridging a number of worlds. Can you speak to us a little bit about about the worlds that sort of, yeah, came colliding together in their careers? Yeah, thank you. That's a wonderful question as well. The mythology is that women are not cantors, women cannot be cantors, and that the female voice is prohibited in the synagogue space, and that only as a response to feminism in the United States Mm -hmm. in the second half of the 20th century did women become cantors. So we know that this isn't true from a lot of different sources, Mm -hmm. that women were involved as prayer leaders in synagogues in small towns in Europe, right, Uh, in uh, non-official roles, but that were recognized by communities as important and that were even sometimes paid paid roles, right? The women would help, uh, women who were literate and knew knew the liturgy would help other women pray in the synagogue, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, literacy in Hebrew not being as common among women as Uh, uh, among men. uh Uh-huh. And also would would act as kind of translators, translating prayers into into Yiddish, which was the vernacular language. Mm-hmm. And then there were also other very specific kinds of ritual functions that women did in Europe. So I'm I'm drawing a lot now on uh, the recently translated into English uh, Abraham Rechtman uh, ethnography of uh, Jewish life and released as the lost world of, of Russian Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that work gives a lot of information about these kinds of women spirit, spirit practitioners. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a scholar named uh, Annabelle Cohen, who has been doing just tremendous work going through many different ethnographic sources, pulling out stories of, of women's ritual life in Eastern Europe. Uh, so these sources are kind of greatly enriching mm-hmm. our knowledge at this mm-hmm. moment about this, about the subject. And, uh, feeding my exploration of of the the Chazantas, who are these right. women performers of cantorial music. Right. So in general, this scene of women cantors was mostly gramophone and radio and theater stage, right. you know, specific. Right. But that for the most part, uh, we know about these singers like Kurtzer or Shandila the Chazanta mm. as performers who were, they were media phenomenon. They're coming out uh, as performers singing, dressed in cantorial robes, mm-hmm. the, the kind of the uniform of, of male cantors out as a kind of a between acts performers in Yiddish theater, ah. as well as doing their own concerts. And these concerts were often in synagogues. Okay. So it, there's a gray area. And then then we also have uh, knowledge about women leading actual services mm-hmm. in unregulated spaces like Jewish resorts and hotels. Right, right. right. Like the Yom Kippur service at a, I think you had showed us it was a, yeah, like an advertisement or, yeah. or a poster, you know. Yeah, a poster Come from to the, the 40s from yeah. Atlantic City right, and, right. You know, hotel where there's going to be, yeah, right. exactly. a service and yet it's in a theater space and kind of all the, all the gray areas that, yeah, that come with that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a, a beautiful blurring. blurring yeah, of a boundaries. beautiful blurring. I like that phrase. But I'm curious um, if you have any thoughts on the particular tradition of how the cantorial tradition is taught. And Goldie Malowski was part of a family of, of cantors and, and, and the way that these traditions get passed down. I wonder, is there something you learn both um, within 
a worship tradition, but also in, as a kind of musical pedagogy? I mean, what can we learn from the way that that cantorial music and singing is transmitted? It's, it's a great question, and it, it, it's a hard one to ask because it's a hard one to, to just conceptualize, right? Okay. What is the role of media in creating sacred music traditions, mm-hmm. right, in the, area, in the era after... Uh, records and and radio and other kinds of recorded media become the main way that people hear the work of of the kind of the the greatest liturgical artists. So, what role does media play? What role does text play? Right, because mm-hmm. cantors have been writing down their music since the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. A little bit previous to that, but in general, Jewish music was not really a written uh, phenomenon before the nineteenth century. Okay, and then uh, what role do families play or other kinds of informal? Uh, kinds of settings of, mm-hmm. of learning. So you mentioned Goldie Malevsky, who's one of my, my favorite artists. She's uh, a brilliant uh, can- cantor and Yiddish singer. And she was the, the daughter and kind of the inheritor of the style of Samuel Malevsky, who was one of these stars of the gramophone period. Uh, he himself was a protege of Yesla Rosenblatt. So you have this kind of uh, lineage right mm-hmm. there from mm-hmm. Rosenblatt, who's the, the greatest star, to Malevsky, to Malevsky's daughter, uh, uh, Goldie Malevsky, who could not become a cantor, basically, because of the, the, you know, the restrictions around women's voices. Mm-hmm. And this was a, seen as a great tragedy by her, her dad, especially. I mean, for him, it, it drove a wedge that basically made him renounce religion, which is mm. kind of startling. He's right? mm. one of the, the great voices of the spiritual music tradition and decided he was, he was done with it yeah. uh, over this issue. Um, but back to the issue of pedagogy... I would say that there are specific qualities to vocal music traditions that are hard to write down. Mm. So that's kind of the starting point, okay. right? What 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 is lost in in notation? Right, right. And then how can you set about reclaiming the gap between a notation culture and a mm-hmm. performance culture? Mm. And uh, while most cantors use some form of, of written music in their in their practice, right? That's that's kind of a normative part of, of being a cantor is having a knowledge of, of reading cantorial scores. Mm-hmm. Cantorial scores are a very strange form of notation for someone who's coming from a, a Western classical. Yeah. You know, the 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 rhythmic notation is is a highly uh, subjective. Uh, the notation of what in European music would be called ornament, but in uh, J- Jewish vocal music is actually like the core mm. of the vocal practice mm. is uh, very weak, right? It's not, it's very hard to capture these kind of details of, sure. of bo- vocal production. Sure. So uh, cantors develop styles for how to write the music and how to interpret other people's scores. And this knowledge of the, imp- the incompleteness, the partialness of the text is very uh, central mm-hmm. to being able to knowledgeably perform in, in the style. And, you know, and some cantors uh, forego the, the written form altogether. I mean, and then they're increasingly dependent on, on electronic media, though, so which is its own form of text. But in any case, there's some kind of uh, or- orality is a central part of music learning. And uh, what kind of orality you're going to try to enculturate someone with Mm. is important when you're thinking about what kind of music that person's going to make. So if someone is trying to learn how to sing like a cantor and they don't listen to cantorial music, 
it'll be very hard for them to, to create a uh, you know recognizably cantorial sound. Mm. So, and that's an issue in uh, in the cantorate in the United States. You know, where as there was an increasing turn towards text in the cantorial training programs. Uh, just the, the sense that there's a consensus about what the cantorial voice was supposed to consist of or what it was supposed to sound like really shifted a lot. So that in the current moment, the same word cantor is used to describe a lot of different kinds of of uh, musical affect mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and different repertoires as well. As you continue on your book project and, and your research here, what does it just look like on a, on a daily basis? Are you, are you heading downtown, putting headphones on, listening to recordings? Well, life is very complicated, and doing a lot of different things at once, I think, is very important for me. Okay. So, uh, you know, on any given day, I'm I'm composing, I'm listening to bootleg recordings of old cantors that were surreptitiously recorded in synagogues wow. in the 1960s. This is an area that I've been concentrating a lot on recently. Okay. Uh, I'm reading old Yiddish newspapers to try and find out more information about Chazantas. Mm. Uh, the the um, documentary trail about them is, is kind of thin, so, you know, it's always, it's a struggle to find out uh, yeah. kind of basic information. Uh, you know, and I'm trying to balance it all with you know, with a, a creative practice and uh, a scholarly life. I was just uh, I'm teaching teaching my my class today a chapter from Diana Taylor's The Archive and the and the Repertoire, and you know, thinking about this kind of the distance between institutionalized forms of knowledge and the knowledge that's on the ground among among in lived experience. And right. it's not to say that they are polar opposites and they never touch each other. Obviously, right. they're they're deeply entwined, and yet. Uh, one form gets a lot of love and institutional support, mm, and the other mm. tends not to. Mm-hmm. So uh, my work is a lot about trying to try to break those those barriers down. Break those barriers down. I wonder. Also, I mean, many of us in the ISM, uh, we have we either we either have a creative practice, and there's a certain sort of interest or hunger about the academic questions surrounding those, or we're working on this sort of like academic uh, kind of track and, and we do have these creative practices, right, that that we um, either came from or try and maintain. You, you mentioned a little just sort of like how every day is a bit different and that's maybe where the energy comes from, but any other advice you might offer offer people in terms of balancing that that creative practice and that sense of being a scholar? Like you say, these don't have to be necessarily polar opposites, but... Um, yeah, how do you kind of continue to live into the the the, the merging of the world or the, the gray areas um, around those two things? In a way, I've sort of set myself up so I don't have a choice. <laughs> and I, I think I did that on purpose so that I would keep myself doing all the things that, that I love and care about. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I have to do music. I have to do it. It's part of my livelihood. And mm-hmm. it's also... I feel it in myself that I, that I need to be, you know, creating music. And uh, so that keeps me sort of uh, connected to my community of, of artists and mm-hmm. you know a lot of it is about trying to think about what what's going to make your life be be worthwhile and you know how can you stand to wake up every day and sure. you know keep going and sure. you know and what are the things that give joy and I mean you know life is extremely uh, challenging at the moment it feels like I like I'm climbing a mountain. You know, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm finishing the piece that's going to be pr- premiered on April first. Oh, neat. Okay. Uh, which is very uh, much inspired by my, my research about Chazantas. Yeah. And that's going to premiere at, at, in Marquand 
chapel on April 1st. Okay, neat. And so very excited and, you know, that's, it fills me with a lot of uh, joy and also fear about being able to be, you know, strong enough to say everything I want to say. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, Emiyot uh, Sashem, it'll come out beautiful and... Mm. That's you know, and I have a, a I have a record coming out in, in uh, next month. Oh, so another I, one. I made a, an EP of Yiddish songs uh, that's going to be released as a, an online folio of essays and translations of the lyrics and performance videos, mm -hmm. uh, and the songs are performed by uh, my duo with Ricky Gordon. We call it Gordon Lockwood after our last names, and Neat. Ricky's a lifelong friend and a brilliant musician. He uh, he re recently premiered. Uh, uh, with John Baptiste's new new piece at Carnegie Hall, and, and we we, we uh, kind of grew up together playing with Carolina Slim, who's a brilliant blues musician, who's a very formative influence for me. Mm -hmm. And so that that band is basically a blues project, but uh, but I sing some songs in Yiddish in it. So and we had an opportunity to to make this recording of uh, uh, interpretations of of Yiddish ballads. And that's coming out the first week of March. The title of that project is Once Upon a Time, The Fire Burned Brighter. And it's going to be coming out on Ayn Press. Oh, awesome. Okay, wow. So, so book projects, albums, um, a live performance here, Mark One Chapel, April 1st. Uh, Dr. Lockwood, it just sounds like the fullness of life. Thank you so much for sharing a bit about that with us today. Well, Marika, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. For more information on the ISM Fellows Program, please visit ism.yale.edu forward slash fellowships. Please join us again for more episodes of ISM Fellows in Conversation.